0: When I think of the 4th of July, our nation's independence, I think about what one of our founding fathers, Patrick Henry, said. He wrote, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's for this very reason that peoples of other faith have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of religion. I believe that, even though I know that's contrary to what many of the messages we hear in our culture today have to say. Our nation was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that truth that summed up maybe by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, that if anyone is in Christ… He or she is a new creation that the old has gone, the new has come, and all this is from God. The gospel comes from God. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and He has given to us, to you and me now that He has reconciled us, the ministry of reconciliation. And I want you to understand this is why we exist as a church, even if we don't consciously think about it every Sunday. We exist because of the gospel. We exist because we believe that we are all alienated from God. We're alienated by, by our sinful desire to live life our own way without God. And being alienated by God, we believe, we believe that the ultimate consequence of our alienation is that we will one day stand in judgment before Him and will be condemned for that alienation, for that sinful desire to live life our own way, choosing our own rules, plotting our own course without God. But the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come, sent by God to overcome that alienation and to reconcile us to God, to bridge that gap of alienation, to reconcile us to God by dying in our place. And the gospel is we believe that if we turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, He makes us a new creation. In other words, He not only forgives our sin, He now pours into us the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to love Him, that gives us the ability to be in relationship with Him, that gives us the ability to follow Him and obey Him. All that is part of the gospel. And the gospel goes beyond that. We believe that as a community of men and women who have been reconciled to God… He has called us, He has commissioned us to this ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we're to be the kind of community where people in the community around us, they're drawn. They are drawn to hear what is the solution to their alienation from God, and they hear that it is through the reconciliation that is affected through Jesus Christ. What will draw people to come here who are alienated from God? What will draw them to come here and learn that they can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? I believe it's this. I believe it's the news that we, Central Church, the believers who make up Central Church, we are a community of reconciliation. I believe that as people Here, that Central Church is a place where broken marriages are reconciled, where broken families are reconciled, where broken relationships are reconciled. They're drawn. They they want to know what is going on here, that that marriages are being restored, that families are being restored, that people who were alienated from each other are being restored. And they come and they hear not only that the gospel offers them horizontal reconciliation, how to restore broken relationships with other people on the horizontal plane, but vertical reconciliation, that, that they hear the message that they can be reconciled in their alienation from God through Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and, and you, are, you are struggling and you're in the midst of a broken relationship in, in, in your life, you're in the right place. You're in the right place because the gospel that we preach not only reconciles you to God vertically, it, it opens up the way to you to find reconciliation horizontally of all the broken relationships in your life. And I think, I think really, I think that that is part of the vision for this church, or at least what God's vision is for this church, that as people hear, this is a place where people who are estranged from each other reconcile, where people overcome their alienation in their marriages and in their families and in their brother and sister in Christ relationships, they are drawn to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that's part of what God is doing here in this church. So as we find forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ, Jesus, He not only forgives us, He empowers us, He enables us, and He commands us To extend that same kind of forgiveness to each other. That's what it means to be a community of reconciliation. To forgive, as Paul writes to the Colossians, to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. To forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Think this morning. Think of who you are estranged with. Maybe it's somebody here. Maybe it's somebody not here in your family, your extended family, your work situation think of, of the pain that you experience as the result of that alienation, that horizontal brokenness of those relationships. What would it mean for you to, to find a level of forgiveness that you have not found? Now, maybe in that pain, that, 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 that idea of forgiving somebody who has hurt you so deeply, you know, that seems like we can't overcome it. But I want you to hear the clear command of the Lord Jesus to me this morning, to you this morning. And it's in our text, Luke chapter 17. And if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. It's where we'll be for the rest of my time here this morning. Luke 17, verses 3 through 10. Hear what Jesus has to say, calling us to be people of reconciliation, calling us to the ministry of of reconciliation. Verse 3, so watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles listening to this, verse 5, said to the Lord increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he came in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? No. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you are told to do, should say, we are just unworthy servants." and we have only done our duty. Now, I I need to tell you this morning, this has to be, in my personal opinion, one of the most difficult and challenging teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. But I think it's central to who we are as a people who want to be a community of reconciliation it goes right to the heart, I believe, of how we become that community of reconciliation that draws people to hear of Christ's reconciliation. To be a community of reconciliation, we must learn to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. How do we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us? Think of those painful, broken relational situations in your life. How do you forgive? How do I forgive as Christ has forgiven us? Look again at verse 4. If he sins against you, not just once, but seven times, and comes back to you again and again and again, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You know, honestly, I humanly hear those those words… This person is coming back again and again and again, and and my human reaction is the same reaction that I think we hear in the disciples. Lord, increase our faith. In other words, Lord, how can we possibly do this? How can you forgive the spouse who, in spite of promising you again and again and again, continues to fall in the same pattern of habitual sin. How can you forgive your friend who who struggles to control their temper and explodes with anger against you again and again and again and comes back to you asking for your forgiveness? How, How can you forgive that kind of situation? In this passage, I think Jesus addresses probably what are our three most common objections, that we push away from extending forgiveness in difficult situations. And the first objection, I'd simply phrase it like this. When looking at that brother or that sister who is coming to us, maybe after repeatedly sinning, our human reaction is this, but I don't believe He's really repentant. Yeah, I know He's coming to me. I know He's, he's asking for me to forgive Him again. I, I know He seems like He's sorry, but I don't believe He's really repentant. Let's be clear. Jesus is talking about if someone sins against you. In other words, their sin is not just something you see out there. Their sin is having a personal impact directly affecting you. And and when you confront them, in some way they acknowledge that sin and they promise to change their behavior, but they keep doing it over and over again. Well, I don't know about you, but when I'm hurt by someone's sin, even when they come to me, especially if it's something that's happened more than once, my usual attitude is, you know what? Words are cheap. You say you're sorry. You say you're going to change. Uh, Let let me see that. I want to see you change your behavior before I'm going to let you off the hook. Even if I don't say that with my mouth, I'm thinking that in my mind. I'm feeling that in my heart. I mean, after all, how do we know whether somebody who promises repentance, whether that repentance is genuine or not? We're humanly tempted to look for evidence of repentance. Show me the evidence. And if I wait for evidence of repentance, I forestall extending forgiveness. I forestall reconciliation because I put some kind of timeline I might not even define on. I will forgive you when I see you and I watch you long enough that you demonstrate enough repentance to suit what I think is proper. But what did Jesus do Jesus did not put us in the position of testing the sincerity of their repentance. No, what does He do here? He calls us to accept their repentance on faith. If He, He says, if He comes back to you and says, and says, I repent, you must forgive Him. In other words, we are to forgive that brother or that sister on the basis of their verbal confession, even if there's yet no evidence. I remember in my very first church when I was uh, very young and inexperienced, the first major marital counseling situation that I found myself in the midst of was with a couple who were decades older than I I was and had been married decades longer than I had. And they'd been married a long time, and the husband had gone to his high school reunion without the wife, and there at the high school reunion, he reconnected with his old high school sweetheart. And something ignited there, and while it did not become sexual, he kissed her. And there was a few exchanges, I think, of, of, of notes in the, de- the couple days following that, but he came to his senses fairly quick, like within a week. And realizing that he had he'd gotten emotionally attached again to this woman, he went to his wife. He wasn't caught in this. He went to his wife, and he confessed this. I've kissed this other woman. I've been thinking about her. I realize that is wrong. I have broken off all contact with her. I will never have any contact with her again. Will you forgive me? I got called in weeks later because she had not forgiven him. She could not accept his verbal confession. Every day she grilled him endlessly. What was he thinking? What was he doing? What were his plans? And that poor man died within four months. He suddenly, unexpectedly developed pancreatic cancer and died. And I can't help believe that there is a connection between her unwillingness to grant him forgiveness based on his verbal confession and the steps that he had demonstrated that he said he had taken and his untimely death. We are called to grant forgiveness on the basis of a verbal confession. Now, if you think that's hard, it gets even harder here. Jesus is describing, again, someone who sins not just once against you, but seven times. And you know if you've read Jesus and if you've studied Jesus, you know that when He uses the number seven, He does not mean that on the eighth time you no longer have to forgive Him. No, you forgive over and over and over again is what Jesus says. Well, I find that incredibly challenging. Certainly, when a sin is repeated, I have the ability to question the sincerity of that person's repentance but, but Jesus tells us here that when that brother or sister returns to us asking us to forgive them, even on the seventh or the seventeenth time, or whatever it is, you must forgive them. We must forgive them as often as they repent. The Lord reminded me the other day how He forgives me just exactly like this. Yes, He has forgiven me when I first came to Him and turned to Him in repentance and faith, and I became a believer, I became a Christian, I was saved. But we all know that being saved does not totally eradicate sin from our lives. And we struggle with sin every day, and the Lord reminded me of that. First John, I was reading through 1 John 1.8, and I'll just personalize it. Dan, if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourselves. Yes, Lord, I, I know that. I know that already today I have sinned numerous times. How does He receive me when I, when I turn to Him, and, 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 and again, I'm coming to Him, and I have sinned in the same area that I fall in time and time again? It's probably the 700th time. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins… He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives me. He forgives you if you know Him personally over and over and over again. He forgives, and He forgives, and He forgives, and He calls us to forgive others the very same way. Now, if this all seems too over-the-top to you, thinking about the relationships that are broken where you've been really hurt, if this seems too much, you're in good company here with the disciples because that's really, I think, their response in verse 5. They said to the Lord, whoa, increase our faith. Don't take that as some pious request. Oh, Lord, make us more faithful men. That's not what this is about. I think really you could translate this as Lord, how can we possibly be expected to forgive like this? Jesus, you may be able to do that, but we can't. I I remember I have three boys, and two of them growing up, for some reason, all the time they were in our home, fought with each other. Just those two fought with each other and fought with each other. And you know, I don't know how many times we'd take them apart, and we'd, we'd, we'd have a conversation with one, and we'd have a conversation with another. And I remember one time, I think he was still in elementary school, the one who probably is, is you know, has a mouth like his, most like his father's. I, I was at the point of exasperation with him. And I, I said, finally, I, I said, what would Jesus do? And he responded to me, Dad, I'm not like Jesus. And isn't that the way we are? In our exasperation, in our wrestling to forgive, in, our, in, our, in the face of, of a command of, of Jesus's that, that seems just more than we can possibly do. Don't we, don't we seek to let ourselves off the hook by saying, you know, I don't, I don't have enough faith. I'm not like Jesus. What we're saying when we say that or when we think that what we're really saying is, God, this is your problem. God, yeah, I know you call me to do this. You command me to do this, but you haven't given me enough faith to do this, so I don't have to do this. We may not be that blunt and that direct, but that's what we're saying. That's, I think, what can be implied in what the disciples were saying here. And so, how does Jesus respond? Notice he does not promise to give them more faith. He doesn't say, now you have more faith to obey this command to forgive like this. There's no promise of additional faith. No, instead, he doesn't give them more faith. He gives them a word picture. Verse 6, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and and it will obey you. You know how can we be possibly expected to, to, to forgive? Well, a mustard seed is, is, you may know this, is one of the most tiny, tiny, the smallest seeds. And Jesus is saying to His disciples, and therefore He's saying to us, if you have any faith at all, if you have even the smallest amount of faith, you can accomplish the impossible. If you have even the smallest amount of faith, that mulberry tree with its deep roots of your bitterness and your hurt and your anger can be uprooted and thrown out of your life. Jesus is saying, faith is not your problem. The lack of faith is not your problem. You don't need more faith to forgive like this. When we struggle to forgive, it's not a matter of a lack of faith. It's a matter of simple obedience. And, and that's what he illustrates with the parable in verses 7 through 10. There's this parable of this servant who's working hard all day, laboring in the heat of the day, and, and he comes in at the end of the day, and, and, and instead of being able to rest and, and change his clothes and get cool and feed himself, nope, he's immediately put back to work. You've got to cook the food, you've got to serve the food. Jesus is giving this to compare our relationship with Him, with Jesus, to the relationship of a servant, that's you and me, to the master, that's Jesus. And when you think about that, we see Jesus not just as our Savior, we see Him as our Lord, our master. And that's exactly the relationship that Jesus is referring to here. What does this parable show us? The master expects the servant to carry out the hard tasks, plowing the field, tending the sheep, cooking and serving the meals. What should be the servant's attitude about these expectations? Verse 9, would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? No, a servant is under obligation to tell him to do everything his master tells him to do. The servant doesn't need more faith to carry out what he's told to do. He simply needs to obey. And that speaks to you and me. When we face the difficult commands of Jesus, like this command to forgive, we should view ourselves as servants of Jesus. He is our master. He is our Lord. We don't need more faith. What we need is more humble obedience. Now, there's one last objection that I think Jesus deals with here, and and I I would phrase it like this. This is maybe the pious, the, the most pious way of putting it. Well, I know I'm supposed to forgive. I know you command me to forgive, but you know what? My heart is just not ready to forgive. My heart is not ready to forgive that brother. My heart is not ready to forgive that sister yet. And how often do we know that we're supposed to forgive, but really we don't have the emotions that line up with that. Our feelings don't want to let us forgive that person yet. And so, we don't say it this bluntly, but really what we're thinking is, I don't feel like forgiving him or her. We say it more piously, my heart is not ready yet to forgive them. Let me ask you, what did the servant feel? What was the servant emotionally experiencing? when he came in from the field? Well, he was hot, he was tired, he was dirty. So what did he feel? He felt like, like he needed rest. He felt like he needed to get cool. He felt like he needed a shower. He was coming in, he was cooking the food for the master. He, he, he's hungry, he's thirsty. He, he felt like eating, he felt like drinking. But, but the servant obeys the master doing what he was expected to do, even when it went against his feelings. That parable is for you and me. If Jesus is really our Lord, he's our master. And if he is our master, this is what it means to obey him, that I carry out what he calls me to do, even if I don't feel like it. Jesus sums it all up in verse 10. You also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are only unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. When we have done everything we are told to do in forgiving that brother or that sister for the seventh or the seventeenth time, we are still only unworthy servants of Jesus, our Lord, our Master. We still have only done our duty. We still have only obeyed Him. You can, you can obey… Or, well, I've got there up on the, on the screen there. Don't focus on your feelings. Focus on what Jesus tells you to do. Focus on your duty. You can obey Jesus whether you feel like it or not. And if Jesus is the Lord of your life, you recognize your duty to obey Him. So when Jesus calls us, to forgive others like He has forgiven us, we don't measure our feelings. We make a decision of our will. We make a decision like an obedient servant to overlook our feelings oftentimes and to, and to forgive out of duty, out of obedience. It's an amazing thing that sometimes when we take that step of obedience as a matter of will, the feelings follow. Not only that's not a guarantee. But often, when I take the step forward in obedience to Jesus, just because I know He calls me to do it, He changes my emotions. He changes my heart to fit that. So, what does it practically look like to forgive as Jesus commands us here? Well, first of all, I'd go back to verse 3. Even as it starts, there's a warning there watch yourself. Watch yourself when you have been sinned against or you think you've been sinned against by someone else and you're going to that person to rebuke him. Watch yourself, first of all, that you don't assume going to that person that you know all the facts about what happened. Watch yourself that you don't assume that you know the motives in their heart, why they did what you perceive that they did. I love what Pastor Stephen Cole says in going to a brother or sister who who has sinned against you. Don't go with your gun cocked go tentatively. Go with an attitude of, I want to discover all of the facts. Ask a lot of questions before you do any confronting. Watch yourself. Watch yourself that you give them an opportunity to explain any misunderstanding. I can't tell you as a pastor over the years how many conflicts that I've been a part of, where two parties or more, or have been in conflict for… for months… And and when you bring them together and you get them to talk it through, you see that whole conflict grew out of a misunderstanding. And when that misunderstanding is cleared up, really the substantive issues of the conflict dissolve away. So go giving that person an opportunity to explain any misunderstanding if they can. Watch yourself. Watch yourself that you go with a spirit of gentleness. That you go with a desire to restore. You know that word rebuke there in in verse 3, it doesn't mean prosecute. It doesn't mean condemn. It doesn't mean punish. It's a softer word. It means go and lay out all the facts as you see them. Go desiring to clear up any misunderstanding if there is one. And even if there is no misunderstanding, even if it clearly is sin, Go with a goal not of condemning and punishing that brother or sister, but with a goal of bringing that brother or sister to repentance. Go with a goal ultimately that you want to restore the relationship between you and them, that you want their relationship as well restored with God. Finally, what does it mean to forgive like this? And here I can do no better than to refer to Ken Sandy, the the founder of Peacemaker Ministries, who wrote the classic, The Peacemaker, where he says again, with the idea that forgiveness is not an emotion, forgiveness is not uh, motivated by my feelings. Forgiveness is a promise. Actually, it's, it's four promises. It's four promises that we make and we continue to make. And here's the first promise when I forgive that brother or sister who comes to me. I promise I will not dwell on this incident. Now, that doesn't mean the incident is, not, is going, you know, is no longer going to come up in my mind. But when it does, and it invariably will, when it does come up in my mind, I am going to choose to remember that I've forgiven that brother or sister. I'm going to choose to think positive things about them. I'm going to choose to think about how I want to pursue a restored relationship with them. Secondly, I promise I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. Maybe you've heard about the marital counselor who was was helping a couple work through this this really vicious argument. And, And the husband finally in exasperation says, every time we argue, she gets historical. And the counselor says, don't you mean hysterical? And he says, no, she gets historical. She goes back to the beginning of our marriage, and she brings up everything that has happened all the way along. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to say, I I forgive you, but you know what? I'm going to keep the memory of this like an arrow in my quiver. So the next time we have an argument, I've got more arrows in my quiver. And if I'm not winning the argument, I can bring some of those arrows out and use them against you. That's not what this promise of forgiveness means. This promise of forgiveness, not bringing this incident up, means I'm going to forgive you as God has forgiven me. You know, we talk about God remembers our sins no more. That does not mean that God has amnesia. God is omniscient. It's not possible for Him to have amnesia. It means God makes a conscious, willful decision that He will never bring up and use against you to condemn you a sin that He has forgiven you for. And that is the way we're to forgive. If I have truly forgiven you, I will not bring this up. Well, what about repeated habitual sin? I mean, if there is a pattern, there's an ongoing pattern of the same kind of sin, even if this person is expressing repentance, you may need to go back and identify the pattern. But again, your purpose, it's not to use it against them it's not to condemn them. Your purpose in showing that person, hey, there's a pattern of sin, is ultimately to restore them. Brother or sister, I'm afraid you may be caught in a pattern of sin. I I I see that that maybe the enemy has a hold on your life in this area. And and I see it by this and this and this, which makes up a pattern. How can I help you get the help that you need to overcome and break free from that pattern of sin? Very different then I'm going to bring this up to use it against you. The third promise, I promise I will not talk to others about this incident. Now, this doesn't need, I don't think, much explanation, but the only people that I talk to if I'm in conflict with you are those who are part of the incident, part of the conflict, are those who are part of the solution if we bring in a pastor or a counselor. I don't talk to my, my family. I don't talk to my extended family. I don't talk to my friends. I promise I will not talk to others about this incident once I have forgiven you. And finally, the fourth promise, I promise I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our relationship. I not only forgive you, I want to be reconciled to you. Now, I recognize that in cases of serious sin, it may take time for trust to be rebuilt in that relationship, for us to have the fully reconciled relationship that is most glorifying to God. But here's the thing, that trust cannot be rebuilt in the absence of relationship. If I forgive you, but I don't want to have anything to do with you, and I stay distant from you, I will never be able, we will never be able to rebuild trust. If we truly forgive as Jesus forgives, we will actively pursue the rebuilding of relationship where trust can grow. So let me ask you this morning, who is the Holy Spirit putting on your heart? Who is it that right now, you know, you, you know, even as, as, as you hear all this, yeah, I, I'm in a broken relationship with that brother, or that sister, or that family member, whoever it may be what is the Holy Spirit calling you to do? Not just to make it right horizontally, but to become part of the ministry of reconciliation, to be part of a community of reconciliation where as we are reconciled horizontally, we are like a beacon, like a light on a hill shining out the ministry of reconciliation vertically, that people can come and be reconciled in their broken relationships and find reconciliation in their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Who is God calling you to pursue reconciliation with? Next week, we'll have the Lord's Supper here. As you come to the table, do you want any unreconciled relationship with another brother or sister in your life? He not only saves you, He not only saves me, He he fills us with His Holy Spirit. He empowers us to live out what He commands us to live. Let me leave you with these words from Ephesians 4 Get rid of all bitterness, and rage, and anger, and clamor, and slander, and be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are needy and you are worthy. We are a needy people, Lord. We we struggle. We struggle on this horizontal plane and broken relationships that cause us so much pain and cause others so much pain. We struggle, Lord, as a community of believers who want to be a light, a beacon to the community around us. And we know that's hindered by broken relationships. We come to you as needy people, Lord, who wrestle in all these ways that are heard in the disciples' objections here. We object like that too. And Lord, we look to you because you are worthy. And you, in your worthiness, you not only save us, but you continue to save us and you empower us. And we ask, Lord, for the the empowering of the Holy Spirit that we may do what humanly seems impossible. We may come before you, Jesus, as our master, as our Lord, and we may obey you whether we feel like it or not. We may take these steps, Lord, and that you would bless them by bringing about a increasing degree of reconciliation in our lives and in our marriages and our families and our church. We pray this, Jesus, that you would be held up as that light on a hill to a hurting, lost, broken world. We pray in your name. Amen.